0: You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are joining us. We want to start by saying thank you for joining us today. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Refuge. If you're new with us, Refuge is a church plant in southeast Austin, serving Austin at large. We exist to make disciples that shape our communities with the love of Jesus. We believe Jesus His message, his love changes people's lives, and those changed lives bring very real change to our communities. And so if you want to be a part of that change, if you want to learn more about Refuge, who we are, our vision for South Austin, um, when we're actually launching and getting the church started, I encourage you to jump into the video description, hit that connect link, let us know a little bit more about yourself. We'd love to know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you, and we would love to share a little bit more about what we are doing. Now, before we jump into the word, which is what we're going to be doing today, I want to take a second to simply shout out our launch team. Thank you guys so much for being with us week in, week out, but also uh, for making today possible. Without you, none of this would be possible. Especially those that helped make the service possible today with singing, with praying, with all that. Just want to say thank you. Want to say we could not do what we're doing without you guys. So give yourself a round of applause right, right now. is where you are, round of applause right there. All right, there we go. Now. Today we're going to be jumping into the Word, and we're excited because we're going to be continuing our sermon series, Seize the Moment. Where we're talking about establishing healthy rhythms for our lives. Okay, Now, a lot of you guys might be thinking, like, how are we going to develop healthy rhythms? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and I hear you. COVID-19 has stripped down our lives to the most fundamental areas, yet in the scriptures, it's exactly those fundamental areas that are most or at least first impacted by the message of Jesus. It's those fundamental Fundamentals that provide a good foundation for us to build the rest of our lives on and we have the unique opportunity during this season to take inventory of those fundamental parts of our lives and implement healthy rhythms that will serve us far past the pandemic. Okay? Today we're diving back into the topic of family, specifically into the idea of parenting. Now wait, before I lose you non-parents, I want to encourage you to stick with us because today's sermon, I think above and beyond the idea of parenting, is really about the idea of how we can disciple or influence those that are around us. Right? That's the heart of, of our mission statement, this idea of shaping and transforming the communities that we're in, the communities that are around us, the people that are around us and that absolutely begins at home starting with our children but it includes adults the people that surround us and that are important in our lives now regarding children it's easy to see how this applies right like if you're anything like me the first time your first child did or said something that was similar to you were like oh (laughs) you you freaked out it made you real insecure real self-conscious because these little ones start imitating and mimicking every little thing you do Carrie Schreier is an educator at Michigan State University's Childhood and Youth Institute, and she says it like this. Young children are paying attention to the world around them every waking moment. They watch how their parents and caregivers talk, eat, react to situations, and interact with others. You are your child's very first teacher. Infants and toddlers are amazing little students remembering what their parents and caregivers do and say days and weeks later. Amazing. But if you think that that imitation, that learning stops at children, it doesn't. It it definitely extends to adults. A lot of you guys know Tori Mayo, who is the lead pastor at The Well, one of our sending churches. And if you know anybody on staff at The Well, you know exactly what I'm about to say. I have seen grown men come in and and come on staff at The Well, and within just a few weeks, they are acting just like Toriano Mayo. and I don't mean his theological ideas or his ministry philosophy. I mean, they start picking up his mannerisms and the way he talks. I've even been susceptible to it at times. Man, like, it's crazy. Adults, likewise, can be impressionable and begin to gleam from other people their, their, their actions, their feelings. And the crazy part is that it does include feelings. Dr. Shiram Heshmet, an associate professor at the University of Illinois, wrote in an article for Psychology Today, Through biological programming, we imitate other people's emotional displays, facial expressions, bodily gestures, and in doing so, we come to adopt their internal feelings. Isn't that wild? Given enough time, we don't just imitate people's outward expressions. We begin to to imitate and take on people's internal feelings. The point is this. Our actions, what we do, what we value, how we feel, it affects those around us. It affects your friends, it affects your roommates, it affects your coworkers, your spouse, and most especially, right, your children. And today we're going to consider how we use our time to cultivate healthy rhythms with those that are close to us. Using our time with them to build them up. But considering what we just learned about how people are gleaming from our actions and really from our hearts, we first have to um, examine what the scriptures tell us about our own values about our own attitudes, about what we hold dear, about what we hold as important. Only when we understand ourselves better are we then equipped well, equipped better to to disciple, to influence, to shape, to build up those that are around us. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to go ahead and start in Genesis 31. We're going to be working uh, from verse 17 to 21. We're starting here. We'll jump around a little bit, but I want us to dive in. Verse 17 starts like this. So Jacob got up and put his children and wives on the camels. He took all the livestock and possessions he had acquired in Paddan Aram, and he drove his herds to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household idols. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean, not telling him, that he was fleeing. He fled with all his possessions, crossed the Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. Now, if you're a a regular attender with us here, then you know that I I love to give some context for what we're reading. And today, it is especially important, okay? Uh, Because we're kind of jumping into a story that's in the middle of a story. It's in the middle of a bigger story. It's in the middle of the biggest story. And if you're thinking about Inception, we're right here. Okay, where we start today is Jacob, one of the founding fathers of the nation of Israel and one of the one of the earliest and most important figures in the Bible, is staging a great escape, if you will, from his father-in-law, a man named Laban. Now, Laban isn't holding Jacob like hostage by force or anything like that, but he has tried to keep Jacob dependent on him for basically their entire relationship, going to extreme and often deceitful measures in order to do so. In fact, the event that spurred on this great escape was an act of deceit from Laban to Jacob. At the end of chapter 30, we see Jacob requests to go back to his family who he has been separated from for decades at this point. And he asks to be paid for the many years of service that he's given to Laban. Specifically, he asks for any spotted, striped, or dark-colored sheep in Laban's flock, in his herds. And and while Laban agrees, that day he sends his sons out to the fields to take and collect all of the spotted, striped, and dark-colored sheep and put them a three-day journey away from Jacob so he can't get them. Super shady, right? Like, extremely shady, and thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The scriptures tell us that despite Laban's best efforts, and really is an act of God, many, of, in fact, all of the strong, valuable sheep that are born that season are born striped, spotted, and dark colored. And in fact, all of the weaker sheep that are less valuable are, are really given to Laban. He's the one, he; they're his. And so, this obviously makes Jacob very rich, and it obviously really upsets Laban. Okay, we come to find out that Laban and his sons are infuriated. And Genesis tells us that his whole attitude toward Jacob changes. It's sours. He's angry. Then God, possibly in part to protect Jacob, speaks to him and says, Hey, leave this place and go back to your family and to their land uh, in the land of Canaan. So Jacob gets his family, his wives, his children, his servants, all their possessions together, and he flees uh, secretly. And And people say that the Bible is not entertaining that it's boring. You just ain't reading it, fam. You ain't reading it because this is incredible stuff here, okay? And it's in this context that a small but important detail is given. It only takes six words to capture in the text, and it's incredibly easy to miss if we're not paying attention, but it's in verse 19, and it says that while Laban is out before Jacob flees, Rachel, Jacob's wife and Laban's youngest daughter, steals Laban's household idols, or, or as other translations put it, his household gods and i want to pause here because this is extremely important it's really easy for us to kind of skim over this and assume that it's not a big deal because like it doesn't relate to it doesn't relate to us as 21st century people but but whether we know it or not this little phrase actually opens up a ton of meaning and context the hebrew word translated here is not two words households and gods or idols, it's actually a single Hebrew word. Uh, it's teraphim or teraphim, if you want to just despice it a little bit. Right, my last name is Guerrero, so I'm used to despising things. In fact, we're just going to despice it for the rest of the sermon and call them teraphim. Uh, and these teraphim, they were miniature statues that we that were widely popular in the Middle East during this time. Y'all, and when I say widely, I mean widely popular. There were potentially several teraphim in each household during this time. They were often small and they were made in the image of a local god or even that household's personal god or gods or family ancestors they were so widely used that it's almost impossible to narrow down a single use for them and now many scholars believe that there probably was multiple purposes or uses for them in the home and, and I know that doesn't make sense because that's like a whole different culture but let me try to explain right for example, one of the uses, was simply like the spiritual worship of them. They believed that if they worshiped these little statues, these, with prayers, with everything, they would, the statues would in turn give them a vision of the future that would help them prepare accordingly. And that really connects to the second purpose, which is really the idea of favor many of the households believed that these little statues these little idols these little gods had control over the weather and so that would impact their herds their cattle their crops it would impact uh, the rain and good soil so these were critical really important to persons to people's livelihood and that's what they were connected to and so from there the third thing is that they represented inheritance Right. They represented um, the possession of them was proof to people's siblings, to cousins, that you were actually the rightful heir to the entire family's land, cattle, um, you know, uh, houses, whatever the thing was. Right, Everything was going to go to the person that potentially had possession of these teraphim, these household gods. And so this is critical, okay? If your gods are the ones controlling every aspect of your life, from, from what you're earning to what you're eating to what you're wearing to what you're going to get at when your, your family passes on, who's getting what, these become deeply important. They, they don't just represent spiritual identity. They begin to represent financial identity. They begin to represent material identity. They're much more than just these little figures like these these teraphim were a really big deal because they represented so much to the person's livelihood in that day. Okay, I mean and these were these things were treated like Biff Sports Almanac in Back to the Future 2. And if you caught my second movie reference, we're right here. I'm impressed. Okay, but but yeah, they were extremely important. But why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this as a 21st century Austenite? Why do these the value of these little mini-gods have any meaning to you whatsoever? Because a few verses down, if you finish Genesis 31, it says that, that Laban actually goes after Jacob. He doesn't take this offense lying down. He goes and he chases him, and when he catches him... Uh, If you take a look at Laban's response to Jacob, it's a little weird and almost a little dumb, if not just like archaic and just unrelatable if you are a 2020 Austinite like you and I. In verse 26, it says, Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have deceived me and taken my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me and deceive me and not tell me? I would have sent you away with joy and singing with tambourines and lyres, but you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You have acted foolishly. I could do you great harm, but last night the God of your father said to me, watch yourself. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long for your father's family, but why have you stolen my gods? Did you see that? Did you see that? Out of everything that Jacob has done, he's taken uh, this man's possessions that he had been scheming to keep. He's taken this man's daughters and grandchildren. Out of everything that he's done, what is Laban focused on? Is Laban even focused on this really powerful God that spoke to him in the middle of the night? No, what Laban is focused on is, Jacob, why have you taken my gods? And if you're an ancient Hebrew reader, Three to four thousand years ago reading this, I mean, this would have extra stood out. Because Laban doesn't just ask for his household gods back, meaning he doesn't ask for his teraphim back, the, the the Hebrew word we learned earlier. He actually asks for why Jacob stole his Elohim, the actual God, the actual word used for God. He's saying, Jacob, above everything else right now, what I'm concerned about is why have you taken the most valuable thing from me, the thing that I hold most dear? And again, real easy to look at this and be like, this is backwards. But in, in Laban's mind, okay, these little figures, these little figures represented so much more. He's not just some ancient, backwards, dumb person that's chasing his son-in-law for these little figurines. Your mom probably has like 40 of them. He's not just chasing him down for that reason. He's chasing Jacob down for the same reason you would chase someone down today. These little figurines in Laban's mind are connected to things like financial security, to comfort, to food, to livelihood. This is what the connection is. And so when when Laban is asking, why have you taken my gods? The thing he's talking about is teraphim, these little figures. But what they're connected to and what he really has a a, a idol of, what really is his god is the financial security that comes with those things. Right, the the highest, most treasured thing in Laban's heart is oftentimes the most treasured thing in our hearts thousands of years later, which is like possessions, security, status, uh, influence, power. These are the things that are motivating Laban in his pursuit of Jacob. And it's easy to disregard this as just a simple guy, but man, really, this simple guy is you and me all the time. Laban trying to deceive Jacob with the sheep, what we learned a little bit ago, that wasn't even his first go at that. That wasn't even his first go at deceiving anyone to try to get anything. Everything that the scriptures tell us about Laban tell us that his heart was after these things first and foremost. In fact, years back in Genesis 29, uh, the author of Genesis tells us the story of Laban deceiving Jacob uh, in, in his marriage. Uh, Jacob had fallen deeply in love with Rachel, Laban's youngest daughter, and had asked Laban for her hand in marriage, and Laban agreed. But he told them, the only thing I require is seven years of service, to which obviously Jacob was like, done, Just I, I'm, I'm in love, right? <laughs> My man was not seeing anything past the love. And so the wedding night, though, Laban, with the veil, with everything like that, the wedding night, Laban actually switches Rachel with his oldest daughter, Leah, In the morning, Jacob wakes up infuriated and goes to confront Laban and says, how come you've done this? And and all Laban can say is, hey, you know what? You can marry Rachel as well, but it'll cost you another seven years, 14 total. Shady. Shady. Even when we're introduced to Laban in Genesis 24, even more years before that, the author of Genesis paints this picture of a self-interested man whose only real concern is the gold and riches that can be gained from marrying his sister off. In Genesis 24, 28 through 30, it says, The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard his sister Rebekah's words, the man said this to me, he went to the man. See that? When did he get up and go? When he saw that, that gold, when he saw that treasure. That's when he went up and left. For Laban's entire life, he had prioritized what he could get in financial security, what he could gain from others, and what he was willing to do. And he was willing to do whatever it took to get it, even if that meant taking it from them. So it was no coincidence that when the opportunity presented itself, it was actually Laban's own daughter who would steal his household gods. household gods she believed could bring her wisdom and favor and inheritance and protection. Is it any wonder when the opportunity came, Rachel would do whatever she had to do, what she had seen her father do, whatever she had to do in order to get those gods from him? Friends, whether we know it or whether we don't, our worship is an example to those that are around us. Right now, at this very moment, wherever you're sitting, where you are, whether it's with your your spouse, your children, or your roommates, or your friends whatever the case is, where you are, and I hope the awkwardness is seeping in just a little bit because it should be weighty, are learning what worship looks like from you. They're learning what prioritizing or what making something important looks like from you. They're learning what it looks like to devote our lives to something and to give our hearts to something. They're learning what worship looks like from you. And so when we place the highest value on leisure and comfort, they're learning the most important thing is leisure and comfort. When we place the highest value on possessions, they're learning that possessions are the most important thing. When we place the highest value on control, they're learning that control is the most important thing. When we place the highest value on being around people that are like us, whether it's because of socioeconomic status or the same beliefs or, God forbid, something evil deeply evil, like culture or skin color. The people around us are learning that the most important thing is being around people like them. It's conformity, not diversity. Our worship is an example to those that are around us, friends, whether we know it or not. I'm sure that Laban never expected his own daughter to steal his own gods from him. In fact, when, when Laban confronts Jacob, when he goes to Rachel, Rachel actually hides the, the gods under her seat and sits on him and just says, I can't get up right now. I'm, I'm tired. I'm on my time of the month. She gives two different reasons in that. And Laban literally is just like, okay, and keeps moving. He literally didn't anticipate or expect Rachel to deceive him. But what he didn't understand was that his life had taught his daughter far more than his words ever had. Our worship is an example to those around us. And as we progress through the biblical story, okay, leaving Jacob and Laban and this whole scene behind, when we progress through the biblical story, this won't be the last time that idol worship, as it's going to come to be known as is an issue. In fact, throughout the story of scripture, people will consistently make images, images of foreign gods or animals or ancestors or whatever the case is, and begin to associate those images with the essential parts of their lives. Again, in short, they will worship things, the created things of money, security, possession, status, culture, power, you name it, over God. Until finally we get to the New Testament. Okay, so this is the first book of the Bible, and as you work through that whole story, it consistently happens until we finally get to the New Testament. And by the time we get to the New Testament, these small household gods had actually been outlawed by Jewish religious leaders for hundreds of years now. But when the Apostle Paul began to to minister to non-Jews, okay, to to non-Jews, that's Gentile people, specifically Romans, he runs up against these old household gods again, except for now... They have a new name. They're not teraphim anymore. They're called lares. They're small household gods. And the Romans believed that these lares could give favor in the important areas of life like finances and agriculture, work, and now in Roman society, things like politics. As a result, they worshipped these, these lares, these household gods, daily for protection. And favor. The same, if you think that humanity has become different now than back then, than 2,000 years ago or thousands of years before that, you're wrong. We've suffered with the same illness our whole existence. And when Romans began coming to faith, Paul encouraged them to avoid foreign gods altogether, the well-known ones or the less well-known ones, like household gods. And he begins to use a new word for these gods, a new word for these, these little figurines. He uses the word idol, our English word, idol. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul tells the Corinthian church, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And for the Romans, this word idol is a new word. It existed before, but it had never been used in this religious context. And it's also a phrase that would have been deeply, and I mean deeply disrespectful to the Roman gods and to their followers. You see, this word idol wasn't meant to convey the thought of some image or even of an object at all. It was meant to strip these gods, big and small, well-known household of any value they had whatsoever. In his book, Destroyer of Gods, the, I mean... One of the best biblical scholars of all time, a man named Larry Hurtado, wrote about this word like this. He says, Our word idol comes from the Greek term edolon, or edolon a term that in ordinary Greek usage could connote something that is a mere phantom. Obviously, this was not a term used to refer to the gods by those who worshiped them. Instead, Paul's use of idols here, as in early Christian texts generally, reflects the distinctive ancient Jewish usage of the term to designate the many deities of the other peoples of the ancient world. These deities thus referred to as only and falsely seeming as beings worthy of worship. Phantoms. Something that only seemed worthy of worship, but didn't have anything of any real substance or sustenance for us as humans and for our souls. And the crazy part is that when the Jews begin to go back and translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, it would be this word, erolon, idol, phantom, that they would use to translate household gods, teraphim, in Genesis 31. The reality that all of what these idols represent, it's all a phantom. When we catch it, it turns out to be air in our hands. You see, the biblical writers, especially Paul, understood that the security or fulfillment, things like politics or possessions or people-pleasing or comfort or control, promise us is actually just a phantom itself. It doesn't provide anything for us. It doesn't provide anything of real substance for our hearts, for our souls. When we get them, we end up just needing more of them. They don't satisfy our souls long-term. Our culture tells us and promises us that if we only get these things if we only get money, if we only get possessions, if we only have a political leader that's like ours, if we only have uh, this specific type of item or this specific type of lifestyle, then it will make us happy but they never fulfill that promise they actually leave us wanting and empty, they lead us to do things we regret and to say things we regret and to make choices that we regret, then send us off searching for the next thing that's going to promise to bring us hope and fulfillment it's like Zechariah 10.2 says for the idols speak falsehood and the diviners see illusions. They relate empty dreams and offer empty comfort. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They suffer affliction because there is no shepherd. And while I think that is true, while I think it's true that Paul would have, have been motivated by a love for his readers, he would have seen their affliction, he would have seen us empty. I believe that he was telling us to avoid those, those idols because he knew the emptiness of them. But I think that there is a more substantial reason why he told us to avoid them. For Paul, the reality of these phantoms stood in the utmost contrast because now for him there was another image. There was a new image. In Colossians 1, Paul speaks of this new image. And this wasn't the image of some false god, nor was it the image of empty promises. This image is mighty to save and he is above the grave and offers love and acceptance that doesn't fail and never changes. In Colossians 1, Paul says he, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross friends this new image brought wholeness where nothing else could bring wholeness this new image he brought restoration where nothing else could bring restoration when we were running after the promises of this world that promised us that they could erase our past and give us a new life it was the image of the invisible god that took on the pain of our old life in exchange for the gift of his new life Paul understood deeply and desired for us as his readers to understand that no more are the days of empty promises and the false hope that idols of this life promise us. But this Jesus has now freed us from the sting of death and freed us from the guilt of shame, possessions, influence, fame, power, politics, comfort. We don't need those things to make us whole anymore, friends. Christ has freed us by looking at the lost and broken and giving his life so that we could be now made sons and daughters of the Most High, more accepted than we ever thought possible and more loved than we ever dared imagined. Now that's who we worship, Jesus. We have been freed. We have been freed from the burden of pursuing false promises that lead to empty, empty, empty promises. We have been freed from that pursuit, now given the gift of life in him to run to him for an ever-flowing spring of life. When I'm thirsting now, I don't need to turn to an empty well to give my soul the drink it needs. I turn to the the water of life the spring of life Jesus himself and my job now friends is to invite those around me to see my heart forever placed in his hands it doesn't mean that i'm perfect i don't need to be he was doesn't mean that i'm never scared i don't need to be he was okay it doesn't mean any of those things what it means is that i'm forever running to him for my rest my comfort my healing my encouragement my job is to invite those around me to watch the never-ending dance of me pursuing God because he has pursued me in my brokenness. When we think about healthy rhythms with our children, when we think about healthy rhythms with those that are around us and discipling them and building them up, it has to start here. This is the place we have to start. What Laban worshiped, his daughter learned to worship. What you worship in your home, your children, your spouse, your roommates will learn to worship. I once heard it said like this, we're all making disciples. It just depends on, the question is of what? You worship, your worship is an example to others, friends. And now Jesus invites us to give up the labor-filled pursuit and worship of false gods in our world and invites us to bring our worship to the one who actually satisfies our souls and to invite others to come to him as well. The question becomes, how are you showing other people your worship? How are you showing your children your worship? How are you showing your spouse your worship? How are you showing your roommates? How are you showing your coworkers? How are you showing the people around you, your neighbors, your worship of the Almighty God? Okay, there's simple things that we can do, right? We can turn on Jesus music. I'm going to say Jesus music. It doesn't have to be worship music. You may not be a Shane and Shane type of person, and that's okay, If you want to put on Christian hip hop or you want to put on Christian metal, if you want to put on classical music that was written to glorify God, man, do that. Do that. That's great. But, but are, are, are we letting the praises of God echo through our house, the teaching of the word? Are we spending time publicly in the word? Are we inviting the people around us to share in the life that we glean from worship, from the word, from prayer? Are we inviting people to participate, to, to taste and see that the Lord is good as we continuously go and are edified uh, through the giving of, of, of life that's in Jesus? Are we inviting other people into that? And, and the reason I bring this part up, and I want to make a, a small transition here, um, we're about to close up, but but I, I need to I need to make this explicit that if you're not doing those things externally, I, I want to pose to you that the, it's possible that the reason is they're not happening in, internally, and today the, there's no shame in that. Because Jesus has given himself in his perfection, he has given himself as the only faithful, the only faithful follower of God so that the, he gave himself as the only faithful follower of God as an idolater so us who are idolaters could now be welcomed in as sons, faithful sons and daughters. We can just bring that to God today. We can just bring our idolatry and say, God, I have pursued these things for my fullness. And I have, in in fact, I have done one worse than I have actually showed others that this is how these are the things worthy of worship. Yet, God, I am surrendering my heart and asking you to to bring life to where there is right now a lack of life, where there is a, a, not death if you're saved, but where there is a, a, a lull in life. You can do that right now. Pause the video. You don't got to finish this video today. Pause the video and pursue God right now. Invite him into our hearts, a heart that has probably been, been been fiending for a touch of his life. Invite him in right now. And as that happens, begin to begin to express outwardly this worship that's happening internally. Yet, I know that we... We can't necessarily just say that and then finish. We do want to practically put things into place, right? What we say is important. Um, And so for any of you guys that, um, that are parents especially, I want to start there, and then I want to move on to non-parents. But if if you're a parent, then you know that you've looked over some of the refuge kids stuff. You know that this idea of family worship is important to us. This idea of us as a family unit worshiping God, discipling our children, discipling each other, loving each other, and building each other up in our faith and in our worship of God, the life giving God. And so, we want to create spaces for you to have those conversations with your family. Um, and tonight. Uh, if you're watching on Sunday, tonight you're going to be getting an email with what we're calling a family worship guide, okay? Uh, it'll be a, a scripture, not something long, it'll probably be something short, with some basic questions, different questions for different age groups, okay? So if you're like us, our, our oldest is two and a half and our, our youngest turns one uh, this week, and so it is it is not possible for us to ask in-depth questions, but we can do a memory verse, we can... Um, We can say short, memorizable prayers. These are the things we want to do with young children. And incrementally, as you incorporate people that are older, whether it's older children, roommates, spouse, whatever, to, to have those questions increase, all those questions will be there. And we earnestly believe that those moments of sharing the word together, singing a song together, praying together, these are the first seeds that we pray God uses to bring life to our children, to our roommates, our spouse, uh, our coworkers, whatever it is for you. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want and what we're hoping for for our children? We desire to see our children uh, to be equipped to trust the Lord's character, y'all. To see our our, our friends, those around us, those close to us, be equipped uh, uh, to, to, to love and to trust the Lord. We desire to shape the communities that are around us. That's our mission statement. This idea of first understanding our own worship and then inviting others into our worship is critical to that. I pray that these words that we're sending out aren't just words that you think are for right your kids or whoever else, that in fact they're words that are meant to stir your own heart for the beauty and glory of God and that that would then motivate you to invite others into just seeing you on fire for him. Now before we finish up, I do have just one more thing that that I need to say And that's that if if you are watching this today and you're curious about what letting go of these idols even looks like, and you're curious about what that looks like, what it means to even follow Jesus, maybe you are worried or scared or just don't know what following Jesus looks like and what really releasing your dependence on some of these other things actually means, I want to encourage you, friend, to reach out to us. Go to the, the video description, click the connect link in that video description and let us know. I would love, I would personally love to pray with you, to share more about Jesus with you. You're not alone. We've all been there. We all feel that even now at times. Yet with the scriptures, through community, we are given the opportunity to press forward and to place our trust in Jesus. Together as a church, I am praying that we would begin to shape the communities around us, friends, starting in our home with the worship of King Jesus, okay, okay? Let's go ahead and, and pray as we prepare our hearts to respond to God's word in worship. I love you guys. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that when our hearts were, were desiring, pursuing empty promises of life in the gods of, of the old world and the gods of the new, the, the reality was that you gave yourself so that you could free us from those pursuits and give us life in you. God, allow us and help us to, to be deeply in love with you in response to that truth. Let let the words of your disciple John be true that we love you because we understand of your love first for us. And from there, God, let us invite those around us into having conversations about who you are, to praying for people, to invite uh, those close to us, especially our children, God, especially our children. Let us invite our children to seeing the beauty of who you are and the satisfaction that you bring, the fulfilled promises of Jesus on the cross and Jesus resurrected that we now cling to for life. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.